boo. <laughs> wind, wind sound. Are you suitably chilled, listener? Creaking door. Can you feel the cold, clammy hand of fear encapsulating your hearts? The cold, clammy hand of one more go. <laughs> Mine isn't cold, but it's very clammy. Right? You're a pretty clammy man, but... I've got really good circulation, so, you know... Me too, we're very warm. That's why we're so good at games. And hugs. It's one more go! Yeah, that was not at all awkward way to start the show. But. No, but you know, that's what we specialise in. Oh, we really, really do. Clammy awkward hugs. So here we are, Halloween, it's time for a, a too spooky episode. Where re- we're going to bring some chills and thrills. And they, God, you but know, not shells. No, not shells. I, I nearly thought they were multiplying, but uh, there's nothing scary about Greece. I've got shells. They're multiplying. <laughs> so an industry statement and a half there. Like. Uh, there speaks the man who's been at an awards dinner in oh, the last totally, 72 hours. Totally. <sighs> Let's not talk about that. Okay. Let's um, talk about video games. Let's talk about you, Barry aye, Topping, Barry and about Topping. me, Nicole Hay, and the uh, the games that we used to love, games that we still love, and games that we hope that you'll love too. And uh, as we said, it is a it's a spooky special this month as mm. we take a look at um, well some Halloween appropriate video games. Yes, that's a good thing to note. Halloween appropriate. Mine was mine is quite tenuous, but it is scarier than a lot of actual Halloween games. I'd say. Well, you see, well, mine isn't really scary at all, but it's it, it's got the the Halloween ghouls and monsters vibe. We have a Halloween theme going on somewhere in our in our Venn diagram. There is a well, well we're covering all aspects of Halloween. So, uh, what what we've been up to since our Saturn Bomberman special? Well, we. Uh, well, the major thing that happened in both of us is we went to the Eurogamer Expo mm. in uh, in London town, and uh, there was lots of new video games. It was really boring and terrible, uh, and not the sort of thing that we'll talk about here. Not at all the kind of thing we were interested in. No, but there was old video games as well, which was lovely. The retro area was even bigger this year, um, and it, it was really good. Whereas it took took two days to finally get a game of Saturn Bomberman, though. Yeah, and, and they didn't have ten player set up, which was kind of lame. But. Yeah, four player Saturn Bomberman. It's like it's neutered. It's yeah. like so uh, I, I think I, I got to play one one round. Totally dominated, right enough. Of but, course, oh, of course. course. I got to watch you dominate. No, but then you jumped on and got got your ass handed to you in a eleventh hour I, kick bomb shootout. Oh, that's right. We ended up just sort of like battering bombs back and forward at each other across the venue. That was great. Well, everybody else had died like three hours earlier just exactly. sat and watched us. Mm. That was uh, I. Aye, we're we're good at that game. We are. It, <laughs> well, the games we're not so good at that that football game. Oh yeah, you, super, super the um, yes. Those of you who follow us on our Tumblr, one more go podcast.tumblr.com, uh, may remember a couple of weeks ago I put up um, a wee gift post celebrating Super Sidekicks 3 on the mm. Neo Geo. I, like, quite apart from just that game, having uh, having a wee chance to play through a Neo Geo was great fun because that yeah, was. Yeah, it was that, that Neo Geo X, which is basically the like it's basically an emulator, but obviously in nice hardware form. Yeah, well, like Neo Geos were always like the. Um, they were like the holy grail of uh, video game consoles in the nineties because they were so expensive. Like the games were expensive. Games the games expensive, were like two hundred quid or something like that, and were the size of a house, but uh, like like really big blocky cartridges. And the yeah, the, the, the Neo, Neo Geo was, was really the, the the arcade in your home. Well, that was the thing. Like it's it's a it's a phrase that's fallen out of. Uh, use tragically thanks to the demise of arcades but uh, mm. arcade perfect used to be the goal for yes, any home video game 
Um, and Neo Geos were like big, big, colourful, friendly sprites binding around the screen, giving you thrills and spills that you could not imagine with your puny Mega Drive or SNES. Super Sidekicks uh, three, 3 definitely sticks in my head as... The, uh, in a weird sort of way, it was kind of my game of the expo, because it's the <laughs> one that I definitely had the most enjoyment with. I mean, it's a fairly useless football game. Even at the time, it would have been oh, a fairly I, like, useless football as a, game. As a game, gameplay experience, it wasn't up to much, but brilliant. Just completely... like The, the moment where it really hit home for me was like, I think I was Argentina... Uh-huh. And like scored a goal, and like oh, you have to go and check out the gifts because the goal celebrations are amazing. And like there's a slow panning camera of like a very very Japanese man in an Argentina strip with long flowing blonde hair. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, ah, this is this is the game. <laughs> this is this is the international reach out. This is the one that's going to put Neo Geo on the map. Totally. So I go and check out that gift set. It's it's pretty funny. Thanks, man. Um, when we were down there, we had, uh, on the subject of arcades, mm-hmm, yeah. we, we took a day to just kick about and went to the Trocadero. And <laughs> that's, some, just, that's the most yeah, sad let's, place let's, on let's earth. never go to the Trocadero ever again. This is just an appeal to everybody in London. Just, just everybody go down to the Trocadero and walk up to people and just sort of say, do you mind, do you mind fixing that, mate? Ah, episode one racer with one, <laughs> well, like some sort of broken... The graphics thing. Yeah, uh, one of the screens, like um, the and one of the throttles was just broken like flashing too. green on all like sort of surfaces. All the polygon rates were gone. Not neither throttle really worked. Mm. Both the machines were borked. But like so uh, that, like Rhythm Master as well was like like the yeah, taiko drum. Yeah, 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 the drums were hanging off and stuff. So that was kind of bleak. But afterwards, um, our our friend our friend Lewis uh, took us to this arcade in North Acton called Heart of Gaming, which. Mm-hmm was like, we paid a fiver entry, yeah. and all the machines are on free play, and basically you can hang about there as long as you want, and like, it really quite, it was awesome. I mean, all the old Trocadero cabs... Uh, all the I'd, old Naomi um, cabinets. Yeah, I wondered where they were, like, that, that guy's bought them all, and the best thing is, while we were there, there was stuff already on the machines that we wanted to play, mm-hmm. but like, the, the guy was so nice about it, he was like, oh, if there's anything you want to play, let me know, and I'll flash it to the machines just now. So I got to play stuff like Ikariga and that on an actual arcade cabinet, and that was pretty special. And it's quite a it's quite a decent range. I mean, obviously, the sort of stars of the show, the the Naomi machine. So like, that's like your that's covering like your mid to late nineties Sega slash Capcom experience, like loads of Street Fighter, well, yeah, like that sort Puzzle of thing. Fighter and that as well. But you know, he had like a few machines set up with things like slightly older, like like those sort of like. Um, Eight game and one machines that you might have seen before. I've seen them in a few places. They've got like Bomb Jack and the Donkey Kongs and stuff like that on there oh, as yeah, well. Yeah. And there was a Mario Brothers machine set up as well, which yeah, was there was a, a cool. Gra- Gradius versus one as well, which was a and a bunch of light game, uh, light gun game ones as well. And I think through the back they had like a land set up for like a yeah, they did. Know. They had a lot of Xboxes through the back. So really, really nice place. Really cool guy who's obviously wildly passionate about what he's doing. Um, just have a look for them on, on Google if you're going to be about London. Um, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, but I mean you can get a tube out and it's a ten minute walk down. So yeah, and definitely worth uh, seeking out and you know give them some support because that's the that's the sort of thing we'd like to see in all corners of the nation. Just yeah. like little uh, little little uh, meccas for uh, like minded video game enthusiasts. So that's it. Heart of Gaming in yeah. North Acton in London. If you are a Londoner, go check that out if you haven't because it's amazing. Um, a rumor that's been floating about um, sort of since last week was this uh, this chat that Nintendo may be bringing some updated N sixty four remakes to the Wii U mm-hmm. under the sort of banner of reimagined. 
Oh dear. Um, the rumour says there could be seven titles and they'll be treated much in the same way as the Wind Waker remake was in terms of they'll be 16 by 9 they'll have updated graphics, they'll have maybe some new gamepad specific elements. Um, the most interesting rumour is that um, there could be a, a version of Super Mario 64 that will have sort of two player mode which could support two gamepads. See, well, that's which is interesting. You know, that is interesting, especially like well, Mario sixty four is one of those games. There was, there's long been loads of rumors about the stuff that they started working on, but like had to, had to leave out just for like reasons of space or time and stuff mm. like that. I mean, the most famous example is that like Yoshi was going to be in it, but they couldn't fit him in. So all that's left, like because they still had like the the um, the character model for him, he just stands on the roof of the castle. When you mm. completed the game, you can. Get a cannon up to there and have a wee chat with Yoshi. So, so that, like there was, there was yeah. rumours, I believe, of like they're wanting to try and get a two-player element into Mario sixty four because that was the first like mainline Mario game that didn't have any two-player yeah in it at all. So yeah, I mean, if they want to fill gaps in the Wii U's lineup when sixty four remakes, I'm more than happy about that. Except it's just another excuse to play Wii U, which is a lovely experience as well. Indeed. So, moving on to the games. Yes. I will be going first this time, I believe. That's right. You are taking a trip into the dark sides of the frontal lobe. <laughs> trip is right. I will be coming back in a wee minute and talking about LSD Dream Emulator. Then, Barry, tell us what it's like inside the head of a Japanese programmer. <laughs> well, LSD is a game that I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with. I remember it from from when it was mm-hmm. about. Um, it never, never, we never got over here. Um, it's a very Japanese thing, but I remember still seeing it in magazines at the time and always having an interest in playing it. So when emulation became a viable thing, I went and had a shot of it. Um, and it's it's anyone that has a game that they find is scary. You know, everyone has games that they think are scary games, and it's the same with this. The thing that freaks me out about this game is I don't think they ever set out to make it a legitimate horror game. Mm-hmm. I think they tried to create. I mean, the game's called LSD. Like, I think yeah. they tried to create something that had a bit of a drug-like kind of psychedelic experience. Why don't you explain that experience first, and then we'll we'll get into why it's. Slightly horrific. All right, fine, fine then. <laughs> okay. Right, f- okay, like I said, so for anyone unfamiliar, um, LSD Dream Emulator came out in 1998 for the the PlayStation. Um, it was developed by Outside Directors Company and it was published by Asmic Ace Entertainment. Um, this is the, the well, this is where it kind of it's a very unique game in the sense that the gameplay is not unique, but the premise is. Um, it was based on a decade-long dream journey that was kept uh, um, by an Asmacase staff member called uh, Hiroko Nishikawa. So he kept a diary of his dreams for 10 years. It's just something that he did anyway. Well, it's like a Japanese guy that took all the pictures of his dinner for 40 years. <laughs> it's just like the Japanese like to collect things. So this guy yeah. was collecting the experience of his dreams. Um, it was released as a sort of part of a trilogy of products. Um, the other two being a, a music CD, which featured all the music from the game, uh-huh. and the final one was like a, it was an actual published version of his real dream journal. All right. So there was like the published version, the dream journal, the music, and the game, and these three elements were what made up the sort of trilogy of LSD. Um, interestingly, the first thing that comes up when you look into the development process of this is that it was mostly made by um, one one guy, um, Osamu Sato. 
And he's not the guy that kept the dream journal, right. which I think is interesting because I had always assumed that the game was made by the guy that made the dream journal, but it's not. So, so what you what you really have here is I only mention I only think this is interesting because I'd always played it under the impression that uh, I was playing a game that where a guy had made representations of dreams that he had yeah. but no it's made by a guy who just read about dream experiences and then sort of interpreted them in his own way and a lot of what a lot of his dreams must have fed into that you know what I mean you would have thought so yeah because uh, like the main sort of striking thing about this is that like this uh, this is right in the the middle of the uh, our game's art debate mm. because it's definitely an art project Perhaps not much of a game. I think it, it just does enough to be a game. But um, the interesting part of it, like, I mean, I have to assume that this first guy was keeping the dream journal because this was just something he wanted to do. Aye. And it took the second guy to see the um, the potential of it. Yeah, well, I mean, the guy obviously felt like um, Os- Osama Sato, the, like I said, the guy that made it, must have felt strongly enough about it because he was the director, the designer, the programmer, did all the art, did all the music mm-hmm. for it. So, I mean, it, it, it'd be interesting to know if these guys were like maybe even really good mates or that. Yeah, um, but you know, like the the whole um, the whole genre of trying to interpret dreams has been, you know, sort of fodder for like every genre of yeah. art going and i think video games is an interesting medium to do it in because it you know by its nature it can be random rather than Mm. you know sort of other more linear forms there was a lot of this is a game that fits in the ps1 era where there were a lot of kind of psychedelic visuals going on in games anyway yeah is that like late 90s era ps1 games where it's all kind of like acid tunes and crazy visuals and stuff like that. And the game, the game's called fucking LSD, which apparently stands for Lovely Sweet Dream. Yes. But there are obvious drug connotations there. Um, interestingly, couldn't find anything about the drug use of the guy that was keeping the dream journal. But again, you know, like in art, quite often you get people who aren't actually taking drugs, but they kind of want to exactly. get across that experience. I'd be interested to know anyone that plays this game and has their own drug experiences. I'd be mm. interested to know if they see any of that in there. You know, like in in terms of you know sort of games representing drug experiences, it's it's quite far removed from the other sort of famous ones like Jeff Minter's games. Like yeah, those yeah. are those are definitely all about just sort of like reacting to shapes and colors. And this is really trying to get across the the sort of loose associations of events and like you know items not really being like representing literally what they are. Yeah, I mean the, the gameplay for basically. It's a first-person exploration game. Mm-hmm. There are no controls to speak of. You can move, you can look up, you can look down, um, and you explore these sort of 3D dream sequences, which can be set in a variety of environments. They're randomly generated to a point. There are the same sort of environments that come up every night. Like, there's a desert environment, there's a kind of feudal Japan environment, mm-hmm. there's a kind of, what's almost like a big toy box. Yeah. But the thing that's randomly generated is, the, like, the intensity of it in terms of what the textures of the 3D environments look the like. colours as well. Yeah, yeah, even, like, a subtle change in colour can make something really disturbing, whereas it wasn't really before. The music as well, and the there's, through a system called linking, you move between these 3D environments, um, each dream, each night, if you will, lasts about 10 minutes, and you can stay in one environment just for 10 minutes exploring, mm-hmm. or by bumping into a wall or bumping into an object, it takes you deeper into the dream, which takes you to a new environment, often a slightly more psychedelic and often darker 
kind of environment and you know you're sort you meet a lot of strange things in these environments the thing that, there are many 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 things that freak me out about this but it's strange things that I can recognize from my own dreams for example there's you're in the desert and there's a giant turtle and when you move in a certain range to the turtle it becomes just a regular sized turtle yeah. I don't know why that is but stuff like that freaks me out and the way that textures can kind of change randomly or change subtly or sometimes there'll be like a kind of a noise will be introduced for a few seconds and then it'll go away so through the course of these, it feels like the game almost knows from the amount of time you spend in environments what you like and what you don't like. And you know, over the, I mean, I've put about four or five hours into this game, right? And sort of, there's every time you have a dream, there's a chart which sort of explains the overall mood of the dream. Whether it was well, there's like, like four axes, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. There's like upper, downer. Uh, it's like intense or nice. Yeah, I can't yeah, remember yeah. the exact nomenclature, but yeah. And it sort of charts that on what what the dream was like, um, and obviously the two dreams are never never the same because there's always at least a, a change in texture. But I mean, the environments themselves are creepy, but it's the it's the the inclusion of the unique points of each dream that makes it scary. Stuff like there's a face on legs at one point that runs towards you, yeah. and you can meet sort of people and again it's just the way it plays with your perception of things like sometimes in the feudal japan area there will be like you'll see a woman yeah terrifying (laughs) you're walking down a street and there's like a really kind of low poly blocky geisha model standing on a balcony yeah and if you look at look up at it you get like this kind of really terrible scream sound effect those the sound effects shall we talk about the sound effects is that like for a game that's like the music's a really big part of it, and I'm, mm. I'm sure you'll you'll have a lot more to say about the music than I do. The sound effects are difficult. You get footsteps every time you move, and they are they're really nasty. They're hard to listen to. Yeah, they are. And I don't know how deliberate that is. I think it probably is pretty d- deliberate. The interesting thing about the music is it's it's minimalist in the sense that it's all the same tune. It's just one bit of music that repeats and is played back in different sounds. And I, I say music; it's continuously. It's pretty ambient. Yeah, it's very, of, very yeah. ambient, and it, it just it just does enough to kind of it does draw you in. This is the kind of game that you can kind of close the curtains and put the lights off and play in small periods. And um, but I mean, it does it it really does get kind of when you remind yourself that you're experiencing an interpretation of someone's dreams. It's like what the fuck was wrong with this guy? You know what I mean, <laughs> the the most the most kind of terrifying things are. Just the way that things can catch you unaware. There's there's a guy, there's like a wee kind of a grey man mm. in a hat and a raincoat that will maybe only appear now and again. And when you see him, he just moves towards you. Yeah. And this doesn't sound, it's like a low poly model of a man in a black hat. And it's like, that shouldn't be scary. But there's this horrible sense of inevitability about it all because after the first time you see that dude you're like shit he's totally going to come back at some point and you can turn a corner and he's standing in the middle of a street and he just moves towards you and yeah. once you touch that guy the dream ends yeah like, that's the that's the like it's the weird suggestion about it because like I don't know what we've got across is like all these environments are pretty empty mm. like there's not a lot going on in a lot of them so and there aren't any goals either so there's the only impetus on you is to explore, explore and maybe yeah. find something else and there are some aspects of the the environments that are regular, so you find things like you know. There's always like um, 
there's like a large sort of uh, Cambodian head model, you know, those sort of like uh, Buddha statues. And underneath one of them, there's a portal that takes you to like a tunnel that's made out of flesh. And you know that that's always there. So like when you see it, you're always trying to go in and find out exactly what's going on with this tunnel sort of thing. But they're normally empty, except sometimes there's this grey guy. And like one of the most uncertain things, there's like a sort of dingy, noiry cityscape. And in one of the rooms, I just saw like a woman standing in the middle of it, and I took a step towards her, and she disappeared. Aye, aye, that's like the stuff changing side sizes, and that 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 freaks me out too. There's, I think everyone will take their own interpretation from this, but I definitely see there are definitely things that allude to like dark sexuality mm-hmm. and stuff like drug use and stuff like mental illness. There are general allusions to things like that in these dreams, I think. Or maybe not. Maybe people see different things. Maybe people just see it as... Yeah, this is a Rorschach test and you have failed. No, I, I honestly, I do, I do see those things and I see what certain things... I, I almost feel there are meaning behind certain things. But that's the thing. I mean, it's very much about symbolism. And it's, like, it's the sort mm. of thing that can easily frustrate people. Like, you know, because there's so little to go on, you get as much out of it as you're willing to put in. Yeah. So... Like I could very much understand some people would get really frustrated. It's like, no, that's just a that's just a guy. Get over it. They just put in right. a guy. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, or you know, you could like sort of like really be looking at the environment and its relationship and how he's standing and come up with any number of uh, like uh, reasons behind the visual metaphor if you wanted to. I really hope people play it. I really hope I've. I mean, there's not much more to explain about it. It's such a mm-hmm. simple premise, and I don't. I don't want to get in. I don't want to really share like some of the the specific experiences that you have with some of the dreams but I just hope people can play it and kind of it would be interesting to see what people take from it I mean it is um, it's it's kind of a milestone in like this sort of very specific type of game that sort of comes up every so often it's more like a, a play thing than a game mm. it's along the lines of things like Seaman uh, that was on the Dreamcast and even mm. even something like Nobi Nobi Boy which obviously is completely different aesthetic, but you know, like yeah, you're just given yeah. a bunch of things to interact with, and like your patience for that may vary. I suppose there's no end game, there's no goals. Well, this is why I could never go on record and say whether this was a good game or a bad game. I mean, I think I think people should play it because even still, it's a pretty unique gameplay experience. Yeah, um, it's literally all you do. You walk around, you can run, you can look, and that's it. And it's just everything about it is just unsettling. I think that's why it's a good game to play at this time of year when you're already in a I will embrace the spooky mindset because yeah. it's pretty spooky. In know? the night, in the dark, with the rain battering off the windows and uh, knowing that any minute now there could be a grey man behind you. Totally. It's it's a very Japanese type of horror as well. Yeah, sort of um, unspeaking, unmoving, but yes. you know, just, just at the edge of your peripheral vision. Exactly. Um, so, if anyone does want to play it, um, it's available on Japanese PSN. So, if anyone has a Japanese PSN account, you can get it off the store there. Also, it emulates pretty, pretty it emulated pretty easily for me. Yeah. Um, you can generally get a hold of it anywhere. Um, I'd be interested. I just, I would really be interested to know if anyone plays this, what they think of it, because I, I never went beyond the game. I've never taken the soundtrack aside and listened to that. I've never looked into the actual dream journal either. Um, I know if you want to get your hands on those things physically, it's a lot of money. So this, yeah. this game has like a really kind of cult following, mm-hmm. and I mean, it's a lot of people will be like, "Oh, X or Y game has a cult following," but this does have 
Well, this I is really, the cult really following you'd hard. expect for an, an art object. This is totally. this is an, an art installation, really. I'm sure there are people who get off their tits and stick this game on as well, but like, I don't think I could deal with that, man. Like, <laughs> just going into it, even with a clear head, is still kind of it's quite an intimidating game. So, but I would be really interested to know what people think about this game, and I really hope that some people play it. And, uh, maybe I'm just, you know, maybe there's nothing terrifying about it at all, and it just speaks to me on a on a mental level that it won't speak to others on. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about scary games. I think that'll be part of the conversation, you know, what actually sort of works for people psychologically, mm. the different types of scares. Mm. This is certainly one type. And uh, now that we're moving on, I'll be talking about a very, very, a very, different, very different type of, of, of scare. But, um, you know, this is Halloween, so... Yeah, let's cover all the bases. When we come back, I will talk to you about Mega Drive platform game Decapitac. So, Nickel, Decapitac, a game that we briefly spoke about when you picked some music for it a couple of months ago. Yeah, that's right, I'll get on to it later. It does have incredible music, but it's also... Uh, well, it's interesting, we, we, when we spoke about uh, LSD there, we said there's there's not a lot to, to say to it beyond the, the initial premise, and that's kind of the same with Decapitac, because mm. it is a very traditional 1991 side-scrolling platform game. I feel like our, our time on this podcast doing 90s platformers is probably finite. Like, yeah. there's not much that you can say. But, I mean, luckily Decapitac is interesting enough that it's kind of... It, it's it's a, it's a spooky-themed game. Mm-hmm. There are definite kind of cartoony horror elements to it, but it didn't start its life. No, well, this is in the interesting way. thing about it. Like the, like I say, the actual game itself is, is fairly standard fare, but it's got a really interesting lineage. Um, like we say, Decapitac itself came out in 1991 from Vic Tokai Games, and it's um like the, the the basic gameplay of it um you play a mummy called Chuck D head whose uh, actual head is in his chest um he hits enemies by like forcing his neck out of his chest and punching them with his face um and there's also a gameplay element where he can like pick up a skull which acts like a boomerang it sits on his shoulders and he can like throw it at enemies to to hurt them hence and the game title roll back at him yeah um but this sort of basic gameplay formula of uh, having a wee helper companion you can throw actually started in a Master System game called Psycho Fox, um, which is otherwise completely unrelated to Decap Attack. They're not mm. sequels at all. Now, the interesting thing is Psycho Fox took this basic gameplay and um, there was a NES version made by the same company, but that came out as Kid Cool, which was a licensed game uh, based on a very popular um, sort of kids' TV star in Japan at the time. Again, every time one comes up, I will mention it, there is a Game Center CX episode about Kid Cool, which is worth a watch, as it explains. It's interesting in terms of what could become a licensed game right. in Japan. Like anyone familiar with Takeshi's Challenge, again, the amount of stuff that they will make licensed games out of. That just again sort of speaks to how much more video games are part of the everyday culture in Japan. Totally, you know. So um, no, I mean, and all these Vic Tokai games, a lot. I mean, was Psycho Psycho Fox wasn't licensed in any way? Was no, it? that was an original game. They just it's, it's interesting that the the thing that linked all these games was the gameplay premise. Like they must have just came up with that one day and were like, "Hey, let's just 
Yeah, well, that's just stick with us. Well, that's the thing because, like, after Kid Cool, uh, we get to the Mega Drive era, and um, they take the, the same gameplay format and make a game called Magikuro uh, Hatu no Butobe Tabo Daibuken, which was um, licensed from an anime uh, called uh, Magical Hat or mm. Magikuro Hatu. Uh, and uh, that did quite well. Um, so they wanted to release it in the West, but they didn't have the license for Magical Hat anywhere outside of Japan, and it wouldn't have mattered because the anime wasn't available yeah, anywhere outside yeah, of yeah. Japan. Um, so they basically reskinned it in, into Decap Attack. Um, so you've got these four games that are united in their gameplay mechanic that somebody came up with for a Master System game, and it's like this completely off the shelf thing. And this is what licensed games kind of were in the nineties, like you. You just had like basic side-scrolling platformer mechanics, and you just kind of tagged on whatever you were using to sell it. This was mm. kind of like um, in the West, the most famous company for doing this was Ocean, of course, mm. who like had any number of bland and terrible side-scrolling platformers that had like you know like Lethal Weapon or The Adams Family mm. or um, Terminator licenses just draped over them, and uh, they were all pretty poor. There, but there's, su- there's such a ridiculous stretch of quality and not quality within licensed games yeah well i think quality is something that's Even, only really happened in in latter years like really like when i was when i was a kid like like licensed games you were basically saying this game is going to suck mm. there are a few even across certain certain franchises there are a few interesting examples one that richie had turned me on to recently is um hal laboratories new Ghostbusters 2 game that they oh, made, right, right. which, I mean, there was a Ghostbusters 2 game released on the NES, but the HAL one is, like, a, a really kind of cool game. All right. Um, you can control two wee Ghostbusters, and one of them's the Zapper, and one of them's the Trapper, and it's almost like a kind of top-down, kind of puzzly action game. Oh, um, it's really good. That's um, a good aesthetic, actually. I like that idea of, like, you know, like, the two roles and trying to, like, co-op play like that. And again, I mean, it's interesting that that, it seems like an idea that just a really good idea they came up with that somewhere somebody was like, "Hi, let's make that in a Ghostbusters game." I'd have to recommend this game because it has Nez. It has eight bit versions of songs from the Ghostbusters Two soundtrack in it. Aye. Oh that, man, that, that that Jackie Wilson remix that they that the uh, uh, Statue of Liberty charges through on. So yeah, check check that out. Really good, but no, it's weird. Eh? License games are a, are a strange thing, indeed. Super Back to the Future as well. Yeah, yeah. If yeah, anyone's yeah. played that, you control kind of bobble-headed anime Marty McFly. Uh, super deformed Marty charging about on his hoverboards. Aye, weird stuff. Uh, but wait, wait, that's when you say super anything, you have to think Super Star Wars, which is actually like that's a, an example of a really great, really, yeah, really good. But really they were made good. by Lucasfilm games, so uh, you know maybe there's something to that. Somebody actually cared about the license rather than just like Ocean sort of going, just give us the money, give us the money, we'll knock something out. Big in a license week. as well, Star Wars. So you're right, maybe people felt they had to do something good there. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that in the nights we ended up with these. Uh, Four games, like 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 I I can't I don't know of any other games that that use this gameplay mechanic of like the chucking your wee Throwing companion at, which is a shame because it is actually a really fun um, uh, wrinkle into the old uh, runny jumpy catchy monkey. It, it has <laughs> platform the, game. It definitely thing. has the Sega platform game vibe in terms of like the the item system and stuff. There's an Alex Kidd vibe to this game when I play that. Well, yeah, but that's that's the interesting thing. So like, they, they've um, they they took over to the West and they put on this sort of like 
Western cartoony horror vibe to it. So, like, you know, your main character's a monkey. Uh, monkey? Your main character's a mummy. <laughs> Uh, all your all your bad guys are like you've got like werewolves and things like that, mm-hmm. um, but a lot of them are just kind of like weird wee critters, like like little sort of jumpy about guys with uh, that shoot arrows at you. There's a uh, one set of characters that are like um, little creatures in smocks that have got like uh, cow skulls on their heads and things like that. All right, you get ghosts as well, and and weirdly like the the sort of aerial villains that fly across just look like Daffy Duck. <laughs> um, but like that's kind of the aesthetic. The, the the cartoony graphics are really sort of Chuck Jones. But there's a lot of, uh, and this must be an accident. But they look a lot like Trapdoor. If oh, you remember that, yeah. like um, that, which is a a good relevant spooky cartoon for uh, for this time of year. Mm. Trapdoor. If you any of you don't remember it, if you in case you're too young, too young. Uh, it was uh, stop motion Cosgrove Hall Hall animation in the sort of late eighties. Um, featuring a guy who who worked in the basement of a spooky castle, and there was a trapdoor in the middle where all the minions of hell lived down there, and they'd they'd break out to crazy antics every week. Cosgrove all did a lot of spooky. They yeah, did well, Dracula, Count Dracula, well, yeah. They, they loved their spooky. Like, do we ever get a Count Dracula game? There's a trapdoor game though. Eh? There was one on the like sort of Spectrum Amstrad C sixty four, which I remember being pretty poor. Uh, Maybe someone will do a Kickstarter so they remake it. Or something. Yeah, it seems inevitable now. Boogerman's Booger coming Man. back. Oh. Hooray, Boogerman's coming back. Let's give that no more airtime. Like. <laughs> yeah, that, let's yeah walk away. Um, so yeah, but like uh, it's weird because um, I I, uh, I emulated this because my yeah. Mega Drive doesn't work. Um, but the ROM I downloaded also came with a ROM for Magical, Magical. Hat. So it was it was interesting to kind of compare and contrast because uh, like the like the graphic like magical hat like your your main guy is just like a wee it's a wee sort of like Arabian Nights looking sort of guy yeah, it's a wee he, guy he with throws, like a turban throws on his turban or something no he doesn't oh, throw he his turban he's got his turban uh, which I assume is the magical hat the thing he throws is like a wee egg guy with red boots who looks for all the world like dizzy ah right. Um, but like uh, in terms of level design, like I only played like the first couple of levels in Magical Hat, but like uh, they weren't themed like the Decapitac ones. Uh, and like the very first stage you play is laid out differently in both games. But then like World One, Two, and World One Three are exactly the same level layout with like enemies in the same places. Uh-huh. But like they're all like reskinned and stuff like that. It's really weird. All oh, right. Um, so yeah, like the there like, there does seem to be a hint of minimalism to this game in terms of there's not a lot of variance certainly with enemy design you you like you're fighting pretty much the same enemies for the entire game yeah like it, like there's seven levels and i think only maybe two or three of them introduce like a a new enemy which like get then gets used like like it's, it's like the same minions that get used on pretty much all the levels with slight variations. Like there's a slippy slidey ice level where mm. one of the guys you fight are uh, are these penguins with clown makeup on who slide about everywhere. They're actually quite terrifying with their sort of rictus grins and they don't really move. They just slide towards you really fast. And uh, on those later levels, that also introduces these tiny wee frogs with massive hammers that are wearing those like. Um, Total classic anime bad guy shades, like the ones like the ah, Squirtle the Squad squirtle wear. Squad shades, yeah, yeah, like uh, that's cool. 
I don't know what it is about those shades. I've never seen a Japanese man wearing them. Does, I really want to, though. It does seem to have enough horror shtick in it, this game, I think, to be sort of... Oh, yeah, but it's total campy horror. It's total Adam's ah, Family sort ah, of thing. Kind of zomb- you, can, you can see it alongside zombies and stuff like that. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. It's that sort of vibe. It's the it's the costumey dressing up side of Halloween rather than the genuinely disturbing clammy hand of fear. It, of course, of course. Um... But the, the other um, comparisons to, to Magical Hat are, are interesting. So, um, in Decap Attack, you have a health system as well as, as, well as lives. Uh-huh. So, you know, you've got about eight hits per life and then about nine lives sort of thing. And, like, that sort of works out. The game's still pretty hard. Yeah, I was going to say, when you can take that many hits, you know you're in for a bit of an, an enemy clusterfucking, like... Well, yeah, like, the game's still hard. Like, you do get these uh, potions you sort of mentioned earlier. Like, you, you pick up all these potions, which... Um, like have various effects like invincibility or wiping off all the enemies from the screen or give you like a sort of powerful magical light ball attack. Uh-huh. And at first you don't use them because it kind of feels a bit like cheating and then once you're like sort of three levels in you're using them all the time because you absolutely need them mm-hmm. otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, and you get bonus games and stuff at the end of levels for collecting more items. Yeah, that's right. The the bonus games are quite good fun. Uh, like just sort of like uh, you collect coins throughout the level and you can place various chuck sprites on uh, pathways that sort of move around and you end up where you're going but the interesting thing about the item sort of system is that uh, when you die um, it doesn't respawn like your item boxes and things like that okay so like you you know your item boxes are these we like t- tiki statues from all over the all over the place so if you go through the level and you collect everything that you can and you die right at the end of the level you go back to the start and you can't only now it. you can't collect any more health you can't collect any more potions of that oh, so suddenly it's a lot harder that's harsh I, well I, I was thinking this sounded kind of me- mega manish but it sounds like it's maybe can be a bit a bit more unforgiving than me- well yeah but the thing is magical hats even more unforgiving because right. you don't have a health system in that you've just got lives uh, and it's only when you like pick up your re-egg guy that uh-huh. you get an extra hit. Okay. Like you lose him. So at most you've only ever got two hits, two hits before you die. Things. And like there's enemies everywhere. It's unbelievably hard. So they dumbed it down for the Western audience. Surely not Japan. <laughs> Surely not. Well, this is the thing as well. Like this sort of reminded me of what was really interesting at the time there was all sorts of chat I always remember like reading video game magazines like talking about how um, like games in Japan must like Japanese gamers find games so much harder they have easy levels and things like that and they're, they're really difficult why, why are Japanese gamers so bad at games and what we didn't realise at the time is that we were playing every game like 20% slower because of like terrible PAL conversions definitely so, like, you know, if we played any of our games at full speed, we'd realise that we sucked at games compared to Japan. I, I can think of 20, 30 games just off the top of my head that were dumbed down for the West. Whether that was they were made easier, they had cheats added into them. It's just the done thing. But they were Still completely necessary. Ah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, I, um, Decap Attack, being a Mega Drive game, as you said earlier on, obviously has ripping music, like really ripping music, from, from the sort of Phantom of the Opera chromatic dissension title screen music onward yeah. is well good music really good yeah well that's why it came up a few weeks ago like it was totally. like I recommend it as a tune at the end um, again slightly disappointing kind of like Bomberman in that um, in game there's only a limited amount of tunes like right. say like there's seven levels and three stages to each and like every stage one is the same tune every stage two is the same tune every stage three is the same tune mm. so they don't really have that sort of tailoring to the environment that you might expect um, but uh they are great tunes, uh, composed by uh, Fumito Tamayama and Hiroto Kanu, 
according to Wikipedia. Okay. Which, uh, but yeah, they did a great job. Like even even if you never play this game, just go on YouTube and find Listen a playlist for it. Especially if you like Mega Drive tunes, because they're sort of classic examples of good Mega Drive tunes. Yeah, um, it's interesting actually finding the names of the composers on Wikipedia because in the actual ending. Um, Everybody uses like a a weird alias. It's almost like they're right. like. Well, I don't know whether it's like they're sort of fitting in the comedy element of the game itself, or whether they were just kind of ashamed of just knocking out this <laughs> like port. But like, uh, like in the credits, like uh, you've got like Karatiwasa and Buffoon Yamaguchi, <laughs> and the producer apparently was Rich Man. No way. So uh, yeah, really, really odd stuff. But. Um, Part of the reason why I've got such a, a fondness for this game and a, oh. and a memory of it, quite apart from the music, which obviously sort of stayed with me really well, is it had a great comic strip in Sonic the Comic, which oh, right. was uh, an anthology comic, which was around sort of in the early 90s. Obviously, mainly Sonic the Hedgehog themed, but like lots of other Mega Drive games had their own strips. Hmm. To be honest, Sonic the Comic wasn't that great. It was a lot of um, what you get with kids' comics where like creators are really slumming. If we got any uh, comics fans, listeners... Uh, Scottish comics superstar Mark Miller um, made his start in licensed comics. Um, he wrote like a Streets of Rage strip and he wrote some Sonic the Hedgehog strips. And they were terrible. They were terrible at the time. They were terrible when I was 11. I could tell this guy was really not trying at all. Mm. But uh, one of the creators who really did engage with the whole uh, thing was a guy called uh, Nigel Kitching. And he wrote and drew the Decapicac strip. And that was just sort of riotous he really got into it he made it sort of like comedy parody out, outlandish absurdist humor like uh he made like the real bad guy behind it like the uh like the the big ogreish bad guy had an accountant who was like going around encouraging him to be more outrageously evil because it was good for his tax return ah, sort of thing cool. did, it, did it have much else of a legacy then any other tie-ins any sequels or anything i think it was just what, what, from Decapitec, ah, you mean? Yeah. No, nothing else that I can really find. No, it was How? just this comic strip that's in the UK. So this obviously has, like, like if you ask most Japanese people about it, even if they were yeah. fans of the game, they would have no idea it even existed. Weren't you saying it was released in Japan before the West? Yeah, anyway, well, that was the thing, seems yeah. Seems weird. Yeah, it was really odd. Like it, it was only, like, a couple of months difference. Like, it came out in Japan, like, December 1990, and it was out in America and Europe in 91. But, yeah, they Here's had, like, this, this whole game. you've already played, yeah. just reskinned. That might be uh, part of the cynical nature of just reskinning a game. Right. Just one last thing in the, uh, the the comic strip. Again, if you are a comic fan, you will love the fact that um, 2080 legend Mike McMahon drew a couple of uh, strips of Decap Attack. There's like five people listening to this who've just gone, oh, Mike McMahon, I. But yeah, Is Mike that McMahon. Man, I'm after wrestling, I. <laughs> um, that one's for the wrestling fans. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, how, probably tons more got a real buzz off that. How does it? How does it stand up to other other Mega Drive platformers? Then um, it's really good fun. Um, like I say, I mean, it's challenging enough. The graphics are great. Um, I think any problem you get when playing like a sixteen bit platformer is that you're sitting there going, "This is fun. It's no Mario, but it's right. fun." Um, like there's there is that sort of looming presence over the whole side scrolling platform genre, but um, as Examples of it go if you if you enjoy playing these games you will definitely get a kick out of it. There's enough with the mechanic going on with the different potions and the head throwing and things like that. And if you want to play it, it's pretty easy because it's on about ten million different Mega Drive collections right, that you can get on every, every single every console format. generation ever. And it's also on on live. 
So if you, yeah, for all you on live subscribers nice. out there, you can get to Cap Attack immediately after you finish listening to this, and I recommend you do so because it is fun. Cool. Well, so that's 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 the Cap Attack. Um, we're going to come back in a wee minute, and we're just going to talk about some scary Halloweeny horrory games in general. Absolutely. Draw the curtains, light a candle. It's about to get too spooky. Fighting freak knuckles, and we're at Pumpkin Hill. You ready? I ain't gonna let it get to me. I'm just gonna creep down in Pumpkin Hill. I got to find my lost keys. I know that it's here. I can sense it in my feet. The great emerald's power allows me to feel. I can't see a thing. But so horror games, Ho- horror games, a very wide umbrella. I think most people think that when you think of scary games, you probably think of survival horror. Yeah, um, I'm I'm going to be a little on the periphery of this debate because I'm not a big horror guy generally in any mm. sort of medium it just doesn't appeal to me that much I don't play Resident Evil or well Silent yeah Hill. I mean there's such a, a wide variety of kind of inverted commas scary games because I don't really need to, I, I'm happy describing a scary game as something that just has an overall horror aesthetic when people are like oh you know what's your kind of favourite kind of horror games I'm like oh, Castlevania mm-hmm. and you get a lot of blank stares back but some of the best games that have spooky themes are games like Castlevania, Ghosts and Goblins. Castle Illusion. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of these games, but it, it just depends what people are. I, like, I'm, I'm into gameplay from them, but I also like a really kind of properly scary game. There's a lot of modern games like Amnesia and stuff like that that are like hyper scary, like Pen- uh, Penumbra and stuff like that as well. But even going back... There are scary games like Clock Tower. If anyone's familiar with the Clock Tower series, I would fully recommend that. It's a great series of horror games. First one's on the SNES, which there is a fan translation of, really good translation by Aeon Genesis. Um, I'd definitely get that. The, the Japanese horror series in general are really good. Fatal Frame series is mm-hmm. great as well. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine, uh, PJ, put me onto the Fatal Frame 4 translation for the Wii. Right. Um, again, a great translation um, available just by Googling. Um, if you if you can't get hold, they designed the fan translation to only work with a retail copy of the disc, right? Which is kind of cool. No, that's but pretty great. If yeah. you if you can't get your hands on a retail copy of the disc, you can just download a patched ISO from somewhere. So I'd, I'd recommend that too. But the way the way that works with the Wii, the way that game works with the Wii mode is really quite exciting as well. There were a few kind of games felt in that. So the Silent Hill game for the Wii, uh, Shattered Memories, mm-hmm. that had the kind of flashlight. Flashlight on with the you, you also had to use it as your phone as well. Yeah, so you, you had could, to like put down aye, your flashlight aye, aye, to use the you couldn't, phone. Uh, you couldn't kill. You couldn't fight anything. There were no weapons in that game. I mean, that that's a real survival horror game. Well, you this is no the thing we touched on uh, briefly earlier. Like, yeah, the, like, like what, the different what makes a game scary. Yeah, yeah like I mean, like, this is the difference between like a slasher movie and like a sort of creeping psychological horror. Which mm. you know, you could broadly say the difference between Western and and Japanese horrors. But like Silent Hill and Resident Evil, I think. Uh, really uh, best illustrate that um, that that split because Resident Evil is all about things like jumping out at you. Everybody, Aye. everybody. If you talk in any list of scary moments in games, they'll talk about those dogs bursting through the corridor in the first Resident Evil game, um, which is a jump scare. Yeah. But like Silent Hill was totally about you know you're not sure what's out yeah, there. Yeah, of, of course. That, that's survival horror games. They cover such a wide range of themes too. Um, I mean, the Parasite Eve games, for example, they have a great sort of sci-fi horror mm-hmm. thing going on there. Um, but like, I'll, I'll love Silent, Silent Hill 1, Silent Hill 2, Silent Hill 3 to an extent as well. Like, they're great games. 
for for both gameplay and for terror are great games. I think anyone, probably everyone's played at least one Silent Hill game. And whereas they maybe lost their way recently, it's st- still still a great a great series to go back and play at Halloween. Like I always try and play scary games around this time of year anyway. I mean, we we spoke about it briefly a few months ago. Um, Gregory Horror Show, yeah, yeah, which was another sort of Capcom game. Like it's very much based around like the sort of um, Resident Evil engine of like you know being in a big spooky house and sort of like interacting with characters and things like that. But the whole aesthetic that's another licensed game actually. Mm. You know, based on a sort of cartoony Japanese show. So it's all these like blocky looking cartoon characters, like a really strong aesthetic, but there's still that creeping horror element to it you're not sure what's around the next corridor sort of thing totally totally i mean scary games a lot of people would say dark souls is a scary game maybe people wouldn't but what game's that <laughs> what game's that dark souls but yeah i mean it, it just goes to show that a, a, some uh, the scariest thing about a game could be like like the scariest thing about castlevania is how difficult castlevania games <laughs> yeah. are but yeah, it, it totally works as well aye aye yeah really um but i mean I even lo- I love when games have scary bits in them. Games. This is, I mean, relating to the question that we asked this month. But you can get games that aren't. They're not meant to be horror games. They don't have a horror element to them, but there are still disturbing or scary bits in it. The kind of this isn't a great way of describing it because you might think, "What the fuck are you talking about?" But I like the kind of bit that make you want to turn the console off and just not play it anymore because just yeah. like this, the thing that makes you feel kind of so unsettled that you're like, you just want to get through it. But like I do really like that, even though my my brain's telling me I don't. I think I do like that about games. And I think that's more a symptom of uh, like oppressive tension scares, like creepy scares, rather than jump scares. See, I don't like jump scares. I don't like jump scares in terms of movies, and I don't like jump scares in terms of games. I mean, I prefer East- Eastern horror to Western horror generally. It's a game I mentioned briefly earlier, but difference. I always think like Seaman is like one of the most Seaman's <laughs> disturbing. Unnerving, like. Yeah, like. Just because the body horror that fish with a guy's face, like oh, that's that is genuinely creepy. Mm. Um, that that like sort of total speaks to like you know like alien reactions and things like mm. that. Like you know like that's that's unsettling. That should not be, and yet it is. So yeah, I mean there are a myriad of scary games out there, um, text based, audio based, mm. gameplay based. It's just horror is not something that I ever would say I'm a big fan of because you get like I'd never say that because you get people who live horror exactly the kind of kind of people that have Hellraiser posters on their walls and stuff like that <laughs> but I mean I, it's been surprising for me thinking about this because it is a, really an, an aesthetic that I think has a place in a great game I mean all my favourite games have at least one one bit that's kind of like Ew. like look at Zelda games for instance pretty much Every Zelda game has a wee bit of terror in it. Like that's definitely something we're going to talk about in the next section. Zelda's a really good example for it. That's right. And again, it's an interesting that video games theoretically should be good at both um, things. Like you know, sort of jump scares and set pieces and stuff like that can obviously be done really easily. But yeah. um, also that that sort of random nature of being alone in a hugely desolate environment with just one thing uh, chasing you—that's yeah. uh, that's got to be pretty uh, difficult. Even like. You go back as far as like things like um, oh, the, there was a game on the spectrum it was like a three D monster maze or something like that. All right, which was like you know just sort of like corridors and you know it's like drawn in the spectrum, so there's nothing there. But like 
every so often you turn a corner and there's a tyrannosaur and uh, that was well, pretty the, disturbing. The early, oh, the, um, oh, sorry, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say the early Shin Megami Tensei games are kind of Shadowgate-style mm-hmm. corridor-based and Shin Megami Tensei 4, the most, most recently, still has that kind of first-person element to the battles and stuff. I, what I literally just remembered was actually the Aliens game that was on the Spectrum. All right. Um, because that was... Uh, Really, like like similar sort of thing. It was like a it was like a first person game. Um, because it's on the spectrum, your actual viewpoint, like what they could actually move, like the actual play area was like maybe a quarter of the screen, right in mm-hmm. the middle of it, and everything around it is just like you know the um, the the bio information of your of like the other colonial marines okay. and stuff like that. Um, and you had just like a motion sensor in the middle. Ah, cool. And there's no music because there's not enough memory for music. So you're just sort of wandering around. Um, and just occasionally you'd see like the health of like Vasquez just dropping completely, so you knew there was something around. Mm. And then suddenly you just start hearing the pip, pip, pip of the motion sensor, That's cool. and something's coming towards you. Something's coming towards you, and you can't see it. They're coming out the goddamn walls, man. That's cool, man. Like, to make a game like that old, that, that kind of scary as well. That's cool. Like, that's a definite. Totally, yeah, that, that's one that actually really worked. That was a real sort of like, oh God, oh God, no, where is it? Where is mm. it? It's going to kill me. If anyone has any particularly scary games they'd like to share, get in touch with us because I'm always up for playing, so I know you've scary. But yeah, uh, right, cool. Well, cool. I think we've I, covered that off. Yes, speaking of people, we'll move on to some uh, some chat from our, our lovely Twitter followers. Speaking of we? people, what a link. <laughs> speaking of people, listen, man, I just get by with what I've got, no, and that is fantastic chat. Yes, absolutely, and people. So let's embrace our people. People. So, Nicole, this month, what were we asking? Well, we uh, we reached out our psychic powers into the ether and joined hands around a Ouija board and asked the the unquiet spirits. We got Derek Akora around. Yeah, exactly. So he said, Spirits, can you tell us what's your favourite scary game moments of games that aren't meant to be scary are? That's at Jackie Corkill. <laughs> we got Jackie Corkill around, she's a medium now. Eh? And then we hit Derek Corkill and asked people what their uh, favourite scary moments in non-explicitly horror games were. And this is what they said, uh, Let's Hug Bro, starting us off this month, um, Lavender Town in Pokemon Red, R- Red Blue, <laughs> Yellow, um, yeah. Lavender Town has obviously that great kind of urban legend creepy pasta that goes with it. If ever, if anyone's unfamiliar with, it, you should check that out. It's pretty good. Yeah, totally. Just but there was like the dead, the dead, the, dead Mar- the the sort of the dead Marowak chat and that, and it was because the thing the thing that that differs between the Pokemon manga and the the Pokemon games is that Pokemon actually die in the manga, and there's a, there's a, some chapters in the manga where Red encounters zombie Pokemon like risen from the grave, exposed organs. My word. Totally. Well, like, I think the games were meant to originally be a bit more sort of explicit. Like, like the whole ghost thing was meant to be a lot more than it was in the game. They eventually toned it down. Like, there's all sorts of stuff you can read about. They got rid of the like, self-scope. Like, or the sl- was it the slush self, scope? Self-scope. Yeah, they got rid of it. Sl- no, you can just see ghosts now. Yeah, well, like, I, I believe originally, well, you know, this is part of those uh, sort of crazy theories that you get on the internet, but apparently Gengar was meant to, originally meant to be the ghost of a dead Clefable. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah it's I, like I know the that same chat. shape and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, but yeah, um, when you get right down to it, ghosts. That, that 
like, ghosts are scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah, ghosts are dead things. Um, a few, a few people, um, Vati Vidya, amongst other people, had mentioned the pianos in Mario sixty four and the the ghost house level. Yeah, the ghost house in Mario sixty four is weird because mm-hmm. um, all the ghost houses in Mario games they kind of are quite similar. But the the one in Mario sixty four is like weird, some sort of weird kind of industrial almost kind of. It's well, just weird. It's kind of got like that sort of like hub feel to it, like the way it sort of sl- subtly changes for each of the different stars. Aye. The piano is um, well. That's that's an example of a, a jump scare rather than a but. But it's a jump scare in a creepy environment because it's uh, you know you just walk into the room, you think it's just a piano, and then it starts jumping at you, biting with a big mouth, bark slash. Yeah. Piano noise, that, that, yeah, that that is a good one. That, that definitely definitely shat it at the time with that one. Um, moving on, we got uh, Kite Tales says peeping through the keyhole in the Honeybee Manor in FF Seven. Um, ah, Honeybee ends a weird one. Like um, I'll I'll just have to talk about this one solo. Okay, but it's the weirdest weirdest part of the game for me. I don't know if there's a lot of stuff lost in translation in that, but it's kind of like it's like a kind of hostess kind of strange brothel place. Right. And looking through keyholes lets you see sort of really kind of strange, unnerving scenes with some of the game's characters. And it's it's all very, very surreal. There's a kind of there's a creepy horror underlying element to a lot of FF seven anyway. Right. But it is a, that it's a particularly light hearted place. It's very colourful and has kinda of really kind of bleep bloopy, chippy music, but for some reason, it has these really kind of strange peeking through the keyhole scenes in it. I think this is kind of like the Japanese equivalent of that sort of um, suburban horror, what's behind the picket fence sort of ah, quite, vibe. Quite possibly. Uh, and then Evil Ninja Phil comes in with Snatcher on the Mega CD, which uh, he says has some scary bits, especially when you're playing the whole game non-stop overnight. Yeah, I've never played I'm not Snatcher, I've not played Snatcher, but I can, I can believe that from what I know about it. Well, yeah, I mean, again, it's kind of jump scares. It was like all those sort of uh, FMV games on the uh, on the Mega CD at the sort of sort of. Like, there was also Night Trap, which was no, just oh, terrible. You're going to say that? Let's no, let's move on there quickly. <laughs> um, Sonic Yoda, our good mate Lewis, says um, a good shout here for Echo the Dolphin, mm-hmm, yeah. which he, I th- well, yeah, which I mean, he credits into the feeling of loneliness, kind of isolation, which is true, but. There's also there's some total nightmarish things in the deep, like the deep sea. Yeah. What, a game that I forgot to mention when we were talking about scary games in general. It's fucking the endless ocean. Like that game's terrifying. Yeah, so well, that that's again that that sort of body horror vibe, but like like weird, creepy things. Like you look like deep sea creatures look so alien. You mm. just sort of like that. That's that's Aye, not the, right. The deep sea is proper terrifying. But Echo also has some of that vibe of what we're talking about in LSD. Like a lot of the environments are really quite empty, mm. uh, and you know you're sort of trying to deal with the whole uh, difficulty of controlling Echo because it's a really different thing to what you're used to mm. in most games. Uh, Aliens and that, and poofed. I'll still say Echo isn't a very good game, but I will nah, say nah, it's nah, quite nah, nah. You, you, need, you need to shut it. All right. Well, uh, as we move on, we've got um, a couple of shouts for uh, some Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Solid 2 chat. Um, yeah, Metal Gear Solid 2 is a good one. Cammy Tolman saying, uh, when the colonel told Raiden to turn the games console off, I did. And uh, Graham White uh, sort of chimes in too that... Uh, yeah, I mean, f- f- for uh, people who have played it, there is there's this strange section when you're in Arsenal Gear towards the end where the, the sort of the, the big plot twists start to unravel. And you have these surreal codec conversations 
where yeah you're told to turn off the console and you're shown like the game over screen even though you've not actually got a game over and you're shown scenes from like the original MSX Metal Gear and stuff like that and like it it is it is unnerving because it's so not what you're expecting you're like shit okay that's kind of creepy and you keep getting uh-huh. these calls and Metal Gear, like Metal Gear Solid series always does stuff where it tries to make the player self aware yeah which is just one of the many reasons why Metal Gear Solid is fucking brilliant but every game has its moments like that where there are sort of kind of like the classic psychomantis reading your memory card and Metal Gear Solid 1 and stuff like that there are each one has its kind of weak kind of kind of moments and that that did get me in Metal Gear Solid 2 that bit it's total creepy but it's great because it well the reason why that's fair is because it sort of steps through the 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 fourth wall like Mm. which is like you know your protection between anything like that you're watching that's a horror or anything like that when it sort of says you know sort of like I know that you're out there in the real world yeah masterfully done and where Metal Gear Solid related but I mean I could go on about that for hours and hours and hours and I won't but uh, as we move on a lot of shouts for various moments in the in the Zelda series, uh, which is really a great shout. And the more we think about it, the more there are a lot of uh, really good moments going on in uh, here. You could do a whole podcast just about the creepy shit in Majora's Mask. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm sure we must have mentioned it when I played it, but uh. like you get really disturbed by like the the sort of dummies that you can uh, create using the ocarina. The, uh, uh, shout out as well for shout out for the the stone tower theory article on Zelda Universe which people should check out I'm not going to spoil it for you but that's like a total good creepy read yeah absolutely but, uh, but I, I mean every Zelda game Ocarina, like, Ocarina of Time as well man Some, like that white guy that lives at the bottom of the well that all hands come out the ground and that, that shit's pretty terrifying the, um, Majora's Mask the boy that lives in the toilet totally totally a can of canyon is what um, Let's Hug Bro had mentioned in mm-hmm. relation to Majora's Mask but that is creepy with the dad in the basement and that. Um, and we've also got uh, Henry Pass saying that uh, Tingle is a creepy little bastard, which is a different type of scary, but right. certainly something that you should be disturbed by. You want, you want to talk about the Redeads. Yeah, well, that was, that, that was my moment that, that really got me because it kind of t- ties in with the, the Metal Gear Solid thing. Like The fact that they're sort of like pretty tough, creepy-looking designs anyway, they're zombies, Like that's... That's pretty uh, harsh anyway. But the the great uh, gimmick of Redeads is when they look at you, there's a scream mm. and you can't move. You cannot move, but they can. They can. They, they start shambling towards you. And it's that, um, like the fact that they're shambling, like heightens attention. The fact that you can't move, which is a great thing. Like this, uh, the whole thing about video games is that you're in control of your character. They're like, rather than being a passive medium like, like film or TV, you are the protagonist. You are moving around your your avatar, and as soon as a game removes that from you, that's a really effective way of uh, making you feel helpless. Yes, I agree. Uh, have you got anything in particular in Zelda beyond the uh, the guy in the well? Is there anything else that sleeps out? Yeah, the the only other one that I can think of are the the wall masters, which is again just a jump scare. But the fact that they just they, t- uh, they take you back to the start of the dungeon. That, that's why like likes terrify me as well because they eat your shield. Yeah, it's like please no. Yeah, but I'm literally going to leave you more vulnerable than you were before. Aye, um, what what was your did, what kind of non scary game gave you a scare? If you can if you could think of any. Uh, well, like well, Redeads was my main one. The other one that I. I go back to. I'm sure I must have mentioned the podcast before. Is uh, the bit in the first Tomb Raider 
when you're in the in the valley. Tomb Raider was a game that really made great use of uh, music because, mm. like, largely it's really quiet. But then, if something's going to happen, dramatic music comes in, mm. and you've got this long valley um, down in a cave, and you just sort of walk into it, and all of a sudden the dramatic music happens, and you're immediately on edge. You're like, "Oh, what's going to happen?" Before when this has happened, there's been like a bear. Oh, I don't really like fighting bears, and then suddenly a Tyrannosaurus Rex comes around the corner and starts marching towards you, and that's just definitely like, "No!" Right. <laughs> Tomb Raider is great for scares. Those early ones, the sharks in Tomb Raider Two as well are pretty terrifying. Anything with sharks in general. Sharks, deep sea, underwater. Mine, the, the one that sticks in my mind the most is from a SNES game called Rocky Rodent. It's just like a, a platformer. Okay. Um, and the second level in that is like a haunted apartment. And I don't know why, but it just freaked the fuck out of me as a kid. <laughs> I, it was the kind of thing I just had to turn it off. Uh, a really good one for Chris McCluskey says, when he was wee, he'd get, get so terrified of losing health that he'd just stop playing in the end. Every game, he'd just he'd get more and more scared of being hit, losing health. And I think eventually he just just stopped playing it. <laughs> just any game? Any, any game. So was so, yeah. a, there was another, a good sort of like secondary one from uh, Cami Toman just saying, uh, I was so afraid of Super Metroid when I got a SNES at Christmas. My parents had to take it out of the room every night. I was afraid the spaceman would get me. <laughs> um a thing that freaks me out in games personally, I might have mentioned this before, is like jumping from high places. All right. Like, like I'm leaps pr- of faith. Aye, I'm pretty bad with vertigo in reality anyway. Oh, right. But when you have to, when there's no fall damage even, like uh, Xenoblades like that, you can jump from a really high place. And I have to look away from the screen. See, that's interesting. I don't get like vertigo, but like I would imagine the one game that really made me feel it was Eco. Like, mm. like, like Eco's got like a really good. I don't know, I think it's just because like the, the environment seems so... like What it's made of seems plausible, but the actual architecture is so grand and weird yeah. that when you stand on top of like a really high wall, it, it feels real, so like, oh, that, that's a long way down. Mm. Um, but to wrap us off... Um, our, wrap us off. Uh, wrap us off. <laughs> yeah, that's a weird construction, isn't it? To uh, finish us up here, we've got... <laughs> is that if you get a hand job off a mummy? <laughs> To end this section, we have uh, our good friend McBee Pete uh, has emailed us a, a longer form, which you're all welcome to do, by the way. Mm. Every time we ask these things, if you've got something that cannot condense into 140 characters, please send us your stories and yes. I'll do my best to bring your words to life. But uh, Pete tells us, the first gaming experience that really freaked me out was with an old Commodore 64 game called Platoon, based on the 1986 film. Back in those days, long games involved multi-loading a game from tape. So you'd load the first part of the game, and if you beat that, you'd have to wait for the second section to load, etc. So this one time when playing, aged about 8 or 9, I reached the second level, but something went wrong during that part of the loading process. The level itself was pretty intimidating anyway, especially for a kid, what with all the angry soldiers popping out of the water to stab you in a doom-fueled soundtrack by Jonathan Dunn. But this time, almost every part of the level was corrupted. The soldier mm. sprites reduced to distorted, melted characters. The map turned into an Escher-esque, feverish nightmare. The soundtrack sounded like an 8-bit field recording of hell. Let's... <laughs> <laughs> full of squeals and corrupted grinding sounds. With every step, the level became more and more broken until my young brain couldn't take it anymore, uh, anymore of looking into this digital abyss and had to switch it off. Christ, glitches are, glitches are scary. 
Absolutely. Um, nowadays, I intentionally try to glitch out games, and I've become a huge fan of the glitch aesthetic, both in terms of audio and video. I recently curated an album from a technique I discovered called safe state bending, where you could merge the save file from one Mega Drive game and load it into a completely different Mega Drive game, creating a mutated mess of code Jeez, and graphics. Us. And specifically for this project, Pete, music. This is this is pretty deep, man. This <laughs> is. And I'm pretty sure this was all fueled uh, from one evening and trying to play this game from an unreliable medium. Um, you can search for this. It's on. Uh, you can find what Pete made on uh, recordlabelrecords.org/various-artist-genesis-bending.html, and uh, you can see all all the Pete's glitchy nightmares given form. But yeah, glitch stuff is uh, because again, that's that uh, Metal Gear sort of thing. Like it's your machine breaking. It's like the 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 game intruding into your world. Totally, glitches are scary. Apart from missing, no. Yeah, that's Pete's favourite Pokemon. Really? No. Nah. It would be. <laughs> it is. So, um, well, that about wraps us up. So thanks, everyone, for getting in touch with your spooky gaming memories. Yeah, sleep um, tight, everybody. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick a wee bit of music to play us out of this spook fest. So let's, let's do that right now. Yeah. Cool, so to play us out this month, I picked something pretty much my favourite bit of music from any scary game ever, and it's the theme from Silent Hill, um, composed by Akira Yamaoka, responsible for pretty much all the Silent Hill, Silent Hill music, um, most recently responsible for the Cine Mora music, um, which actually I wasn't that big a fan of, but the music is, is beautiful. And this theme is framed brilliantly in Silent Hill because there's so little in terms of actual music that mm. when you do get a bit of actual music it's always so beautifully haunt like so haunting man uh, and like the way that he picks his instrumentation especially in this 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 is really sort of like there's a lot of Mellotron in this and for people that are unfamiliar with the Mellotron it was basically the world's first sampler keyboard yeah you loaded every key up with a, a, a recorded sample it was all tapes and because it was all tapes, you get this kind of really creepy, out of tune kind of. For it's anyone that, warbled because yeah, yeah. tape warps. The sound of prog rock, basically, is <laughs> Mellotron strings. Oh, that is that is freaky. Now you've really unsettled me. <laughs> so the thought prog. of Rick Wakeman staring at me over a Mellotron. Well, the great thing about this is, like, I mean, it has this really the sort of core of the song is this really creepy Mellotron guitar and these really creepy Mellotron mandolins, and it it has this kind of. Even though it's, it's a different vibe, it's a different tempo, it's a different feel, it always reminded me of the Twin Peaks theme tune mm-hmm. because it has that kind of really cl- kind of clean guitar line in it later on. And I think it, it just works. It frames the game beautifully. Um, and I've just always really loved it. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of PS1 intros. I used to sit and just watch the intro FMV over and over. And um, and this tune actually made it into the movie as well. They used it as the theme mm. from the movie, which again. So works. there's there's one good thing in that movie. I like that movie. Okay. That's my favourite video game movie adaption. From that long quality list, Ooh. I'm trying to think of another one that that really approaches that in quality. And there's none. They're exactly, all, it's the best one. one. It's the best one. Doom does have the rock in it though. <sighs> Star Trek Voyager has the rock in it, but the less said about that, the better. <laughs> That's real horror. <laughs> So yes, um, playing us out is the theme from Silent Hill and I hope you all go at Geisen on Halloween and I hope you all 
get sick of eating all the chocolates. Yeah, exactly. We'll be back next month. Well, for a very, very special episode. Yeah, well, I'm going to learn something next month. You are. We're being joined by our very good friend, Mecha Gamezilla, and we are making Nickel Hay play the seminal Final Fantasy VII. And we will be dedicating the entire episode to talking about FF7, a game I know is a, a big thing to a lot of people. So Yeah, well, this will be exciting. I've never played it before. Um, I, I don't really know what to expect. Well, basically, we, we needed a dissenting voice, because obviously me and Owen are pretty big FF7 fanboys, so it'll be good if you can be there reminding us why it's a terrible game. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to deliberately hate it. I'll, I'll take the flack. I'll be the hero that you, that you need. <laughs> um, so I tune in next month for that and in the meantime we leave you with the theme from Silent Hill. Silent Hill.